ethical decisions and, and, and when you have to make these tough calls, not only do you lose friends, but you can gain enemies. And sometimes that's just okay. This is Let Your Life Speak, an audio program highlighting the exceptional work of Sidwell Friends School alumni. I'm Brian Garman, head of school for Sidwell Friends, a pre-K through 12th grade independent Quaker school located in Washington, D.C. In this interview, I sat down with Kim Ford, the president and CEO of Martha's Table. So tell me uh, about how you came to Sidwell Friends and when you came to Sidwell Friends. Uh, so, of course, I'm a native Washingtonian, and I went to Shepherd Elementary School. Uh-huh. And my mother said that, uh, you know, the next public school, if you will, um, was not necessarily going to be the option that she wanted to pursue. Uh, and so I toured Sidwell, applied to Sidwell. I was lucky enough to get in, so I came in seventh grade. Okay. I was on Team South, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember that well. I uh, I remember in seventh and eighth grade, all my friends well, the majority of my friends went to Jefferson, uh, uh-huh. and some went to Deal, and I didn't necessarily want to be at Sidwell. I wanted to be with my friends, so I spent a couple of years, or at least the middle school years, uh, being the class clown, if you will. Apparently, there's a time between eighth and ninth grade where the middle school and upper school teachers would get together and go right. through all the students, and they, you know, I guess with me, I, they were to- they told me they spent a lot of time on me <laughs> and my antics, and I was told, you know, you should probably harness your power for good. Uh, and by that time, or at least certainly by tenth grade, I knew that I was going to be here, and really settled in. Um, and just, you know, um, I guess change, just change the way that, you know, you, you go from being a, the class clown to understanding that you can engage people in a more productive way, if you will. Yeah. Well, when I met you uh, in my first year as a teacher here, you were the convener of uh, the, the collections and you were president of the, of the student body. Um, and there was nothing about you suggested class clown <laughs> right you were funny and engaging but you also had this amazing presence in front of your peers tell me about that moment and what that meant to you to be in that position at Sidwell well I really enjoyed being the student body president uh, co-presidents with Jesse Tompkins um, and you know we really enjoyed listening to our colleagues uh, engaging with them and really setting the tone for the, mm-hmm. the, uh, for the assemblies. And when there were tough topics, because over the years, uh, you know, there were tough topics to, to talk through, to be compassionate and empathetic, um, when there were lighthearted moments to embrace those. Uh, so, you know, I, I have so many memories of different moments, not just being up on the stage, but in the hallways. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, people have always said and it's really interesting they say it at Martha's table now is I learned everyone's name and I would walk through the halls and speak to everyone by name and people say how do you do that like what's your trick and I I don't have a trick I just naturally learned people's names and at Martha's table I learned everyone's name in one day and people were very impressed by that but that has just always been uh, something natural that comes to me yeah yeah what were some of the tough topics that you had to address um, as a convener there, there was an incident where the uh, uh, there was a big party, and a lot, number of people um, uh, got in trouble, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
it was uh, it was it was uh, quite well known. It was a very large party, and uh, again, a, a number of people got in trouble. And we, as a school, had to have a meeting for worship about you know uh, conduct and behavior and uh, substances <laughs> and other uh, things of the like, and you know to really reflect on on how you can have appropriate fun mm-hmm. and how other types of fun might cause harm uh, to yourself and to others. And so that was that's one that I really remember. Yeah, and that's a tough position to be in um, as, a, as a peer leader in something like that because there's a lot of pressure uh, from your peers around what you should think on that. How did you navigate that? Well, yeah, I mean, again, both of us, both of the co-presidents were at said party. (laughs) So we we had to be honest with the fact that, you know, we were there as well. Um, And again, just to to own up and in a a position of leadership, you know, you also have to step up and say and own that and say, you know what? Yep, we were there. Yes. uh, These these things happened. That is true. And to, again, go through that with your peers, but again, as somebody who's also there with you taking the responsibility. Yeah. yeah. So as a leader or as a human, you're always going to make mistakes. And so you have to find a way to respond to those. Right. Yeah. And you did that. <laughs> and, Here's hoping. <laughs> yeah. And so you, so you leave Sidwell, and where, where do you head from there? So I went to Vanderbilt undergrad. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I was very focused on what I wanted to do. I said I was going to go into the automotive industry and then into government and politics. It's exactly what I did. I designed my major in international business and Japanese at Vanderbilt. I used to design cars for Nissan North America. Uh, after doing that, I said, okay, well, now it's time for me to go into government and politics. So I went to the University of Pennsylvania and got a master's in public administration and was lucky enough to end up in President Obama's administration. So you ended up, you were an appointee in the Department of Education, is that right? Well, when I was appointee, I was actually at the White House. I I worked for Vice President Biden, uh, implementing the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. That's the stimulus bill, Right. $787 billion package. It's uh, two years of my life, I don't quite remember. It was very, very big, very fast economic stimulus package. Uh, and it, it's, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I appreciated the time there. But it was the first time that I lived in D.C. for in about 10 years. I mean, of course, I would come back for holidays and such, and you see flashes of change. But coming back and living in D.C., I was like, oh, my gosh, what happened? Like, what happened to the city? And so I ran around the White House, and I said, I'm from D.C., I'm from D.C., put me on a D.C. project. And so the Department of Homeland Security was consolidating their headquarters in an economically disadvantaged part of D.C., uh, St. Elizabeth's. And so they um, asked me to lead the neighborhood revitalization efforts for that project. Uh, And it was a really amazing experience. On the one hand, with the Recovery Act, the agencies would do anything that you asked them to do, right? I mean, it was hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. With the neighborhood revitalization, it was like, well, if you can make something work, great, and if not, oh well. Uh, And that became really frustrating for me. And so uh, in response to a family member who asked me, who leaves the White House and goes to the junior college? I said, somebody who's trying to do something for the, you know, the residents of the District of Columbia. Uh, And so actually, when my appointment was up, I I was lucky enough and I'm very honored to have been offered the opportunity to stay. Um, I actually went to the community college, which was um, new at the time. I knew nothing about community colleges. I was the director of college readiness and community outreach. Uh, and I just, I loved it. I loved it and within a year became dean of workforce development and lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. And it, it was exactly what I wanted. The ability to be at a lever for change for the residents of the District of Columbia. 
You said that the city had changed in so many ways after your 10-year absence. What, what did you really notice um, that was different about your city? I mean, there were areas, like when I grew up, there were areas you absolutely did not go to that now people lived in and were out walking dogs at like 10 p.m. If, if you grew up when I grew up, Logan Circle was like not somewhere that you lived or dined <laughs> or walked around. Um, you know, actually, it's so interesting with Martha's Table. You know, when I used to volunteer with Martha's Table 25 years ago, 14th Street was, it was very bad. It and was, that's where Martha's Table was. Yes, Martha's Table was 14th and W. I mean, you, you two blocks up, you're at you know 14th and Clifton, at Euclid. I mean, again, 25 years ago, that was not the area yeah. <laughs> that you go to. Right. Um, and so now look at 14th Street. You know, 14th Street has completely changed, and I can tell you that the people who lived there then are nowhere to be found anywhere near 14th Street now. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's how the city had changed. When you think of U Street, 14th Street, that was not the way it was back in the 90s. So there, you're talking about a process of gentrification in many ways, right? Right. Um, you mentioned then, of course, you are in this position now of uh, president and CEO of Martha's Table, one of the most influential and important organizations that the district has ever known. <laughs> and um, and you smile, but it's true. We appreciate right? that classification. <laughs> we, we wouldn't say that about ourselves, but thank you. Well, it, it has had a tremendous impact on this city. Obviously had a long-standing connection between Sidwell Friends and Martha's Table, which I'd like to talk about. But the, the organization moves, mm -hmm. right? Yes. It has got a wonderful new facility. Yes. And is focused on Ward 7 and 8, right? Yes. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how and how you ended up there? I mean, there's there's a big chapter here in between where you run for the congressional delegate. Oh yeah, right. So there's that. <laughs> there's that. Right. You so 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 you're the dean of workforce education. Is that right? The, the, yeah. yeah right. Well, I, yeah. So dean of workforce development and lifelong learning. Yeah. Then the U.S. Department of Education. Right. Where I was so that's where the ed. For, okay. Exactly. So you're there, and so you move into that. And let's let's yeah. finish that piece. Tell us a little bit about that, and we can get the whole we can get the whole trajectory here. Well, uh, when I was at the community college, we were so. We were successful. I mean, I'm happy to say that. We really were successful. What we really saw happen was that you could take people at any point in life and offer educational on-ramps and a career path to success so that people could achieve their dream. You know, that's the 50-year-old, that's the 18-year-old, and everything in between. It was really interesting to see if that was something that was possible nationally. And because of the work that we did, we, we caught the attention of the Department of Ed. So the areas that I had at the community college, career and tech ed, adult ed, correctional reentry ed, and all community colleges, colleges nationally, that was my portfolio at the U.S. Department of Ed. And what I quickly found out is actually you can't <laughs> do what we did on the ground at the federal level for a number of reasons, but really basically the way that the funding is structured, the way of the political structure, uh, you just, you, we, we weren't able to do kind of what we did on the ground at a national level. And so then I quit and ran for Congress because that's what everybody does, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I, I, the, but in all seriousness, why I was having that moment again. I mean, my career has gone from national to local, national to local. And what I've been looking for are levers for systemic change. And my heart just started coming back to D.C. And my office at the Department of Ed overlooked the wharf 
and mm. watching the entire wharf get wiped out and watching them build these new structures, it just, I mean, and I watched it every day and I, it just pulled me. I was like, we have to do more. We have to be able to get DC residents involved. I mean, I could see the people who were working, you know, on the, on the buildings. I could see the cars and the license plates, you know, and I'm like, man, here we go again. Like what's gonna happen to the people in that community? Are they gonna benefit? No. <laughs> and so that's, that's why I ran and I ran on an education and workforce platform because I believe mm-hmm. that sits at the heart of everything. Um, and then I was lucky enough after that um, to be selected president and CEO of Martha's Table, and I'm so so humbled by that. And what drew you to that position? You know, again, it's the, the same thing I've been talking about, a lever for systemic change. Yeah. And with Martha's Table moving into a place-based initiative, and I've done some place-based work locally and nationally, that is amazingly interesting. So you talk about moving from 14th Street. A lot of people think, okay, well, they moved because the need shifted. And that's true in part. But the part of going into a place-based initiative is that we actually know that what happened on 14th Street in terms of the economics and the development and the business and all that, that's going to come to where we are. The difference is whether or not the people who are there now can stay and thrive. And that's the work that we're in. Because again, we can't pretend like this stuff isn't going to happen, but it can happen with the people, with the community. Mm -hmm. So again, they can stay and thrive. And so that's what all of our work is revolving around now, uh, at least our new work. Um, and we still have a presence in, in Northwest at 15th and Columbia Road. We still have our you know free food truck that goes out every McKenna's day. Wagon. Absolutely. Yeah. And we thank you for all those sandwiches yeah, yeah, that yeah, the young yeah, people yeah, make. Yeah. We go through 10,000 sandwiches a week. Yeah. 10,000 sandwiches a week. And honestly, if only 8,000 come in, we have to limit the number of sandwiches that we can give out to people. And yeah. that's not what we want to do. So, again, we really do thank yeah. you. It's really important. Uh, we also have our Outfitters Boutique, where people can shop for children's clothes and adult workforce attire at no cost. That's on MLK. And our brand new headquarters at 2375 Elvins Road Southeast. It's beautiful. Amazing facility. It is. It's the most beautiful building you will ever yeah. see. And uh, we always welcome anyone to come visit us. Yeah. And tell us about what's happening in the building right now and, and how that building is becoming a hub for uh, change and support for the community. Well, absolutely. So, you know... Um, over these past, this is our 40th year. We're very excited. Strong 40. Um, so in the building in Northwest and in our Southeast headquarters are educational campuses where we have nationally accredited early childhood education centers where we support young people six weeks to age four. Yeah, it's a beautiful school facility. It is. So we have a school within a nonprofit. That's what right. we always tell folks. We also have lobby markets at both of those locations where people can come in and shop at no cost for fresh fruits and fresh vegetables. We see about 100 people a day at both locations. And then, as you mentioned, the hub. So the building is 57,000 square feet. It's all glass. It's beautiful space. And, and it's, it's what the community asked for. We sent advanced teams out before we even came and said, what do you want? And people said, we want open space. We want glass. We want you know, something that just treats you with dignity and respect. And so I see people out in the community and they'll say, you know, I helped you build that building. And I'm like, oh yeah, did we get it right? They're like, yeah, you got it right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, it's amazing. One of my favorite stories is uh, that we had some folks waiting for the lobby market and I saw a seasoned citizen went over and started chatting with her and she was, she was distraught because uh, they have a fit and wellness class and at a, at a place that said that they were taking all their space back for uh, kids for over the summer for camp. 
and they didn't have anywhere to have their class. So we said, you can have your class here. So now every Tuesday and Thursday, we have about 40 seasoned citizens doing their fit and wellness class. That's okay. that's great. Um, but that's really what the building is for. Yeah. It's really meant to be a community resource to support things yeah. like that. So you've been there for, or will have been there a year in April. Yes. What has surprised you about your tenure so far? Um, I, I don't know about surprise. What I'm, what I'm really excited about is the fact that we have such an amazingly dedicated team. You know, we have people who just really show up every day for the mission. I'm really pleasantly surprised about the credibility that we have in the community mm -hmm. um, because before we moved, there, there is a high level of distrust in this area. Um, not surprisingly, this mm -hmm. is a community who, you know, for so long didn't have any resources. And then you've got a lot of organizations who are just showing up and it's kind of like, who are you? What do you want? Like, who are, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we can trust you. <laughs> um, but again, because we've done everything community led, we're seeing the benefits of that. You know, people coming in and knowing that Martha's Table is there for them. They know that we don't have some savior mentality of, oh, we read some book and therefore we know that this is what we're going to do mm -hmm. and you should do. No, everything that mm -hmm. we do, literally from our community mm -hmm. dinners to, um, you know, new programmatic areas comes from the community. Um, and I'm also really excited about the fact that, you know, the work is showing results. I mean, we've seen, even since I've been there in April, these jumps in uh, everything, right? So we have our lobby markets. We have 40 people a day. Now we're, again, over 100. Our, com uh, our community market, which is our once-a-month market where we retract everything up, much bigger mm -hmm. market, used to be 100 folks. Now it's over 250 every mm -hmm. month. Our community dinners, same thing. So we're seeing in a fairly short amount of time an incredible uptick. And, again, I think that goes back to the credibility and the fact that we treat people with dignity and mm -hmm. respect. This dynamic is really important. Right, the, the being able to engage authentically in a community. Yes. Uh, Robert Coles, who um, has spent a lot of time writing about service um, as a faculty member at Harvard, has, has often talked about the dynamic between um, the served and those doing the serving. Mm -hmm. How do you work to manage that relationship? Yeah, so I, I think that we actually wouldn't think of our community and our neighbors of those being served. And I don't know that we would even consider ourselves as those serving. Yeah. I think it's more that we're all in this together and our partners are our community members and our neighbors and they know exactly what they want, exactly what they need and exactly how to get there. And we happen to be in a place where we can bring what they say they want, which is we would like resources, we would like advocacy, but we don't see that as, you know, us doing something to you and you're receiving something. Because I believe we receive so much more mm -hmm. than them, right? Is um, service the wrong word? Should we, be, should we be looking for what kind of paradigm should we be thinking about here? Again, I just think that it's a relationship. Yeah. And we bring certain things to a relationship and they bring certain yeah. things to the relationship. And, and if, it's, if it's imbalanced in any way, it's that we at Martha's Table are getting more right. than our, our community partners, yeah. if that makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, yeah. this is interesting. There, there's a way in which the, the notion of service is a, is a tired notion, right? And this is really what, you, what it seems to me that you're trying to do is to really create an authentic sense of community. Yes. Based on relationships. Exactly. Yeah. Sidwell tries to 
base itself on relationships. We try to ground ourselves in relationships. Do you, who were your most important relationships at Sidwell Friends? Well, certainly my friends. I mean, I still have lifelong friends from Sidwell. Yeah. It's, so many, it's so funny. So many people talk about, you know, their lifelong friends from college. And I have lifelong friends from college. But the majority of my lifelong friends are actually from Sidwell. Again, I was here since seventh grade. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing every now and then we look up and we're like, wow, we've like known each other that many years. <laughs> um, but I also had uh, good relationships with, um, with, you know, some of the faculty, some of the team members. You know, uh, Erica Berry stands out. Uh, Diane Scattergood stands out. Uh, I mean, I, I just remember inter- interactions with them. I remember um, Quinetta Norman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, rest yeah, peace. Uh, amazing. Yeah. We used to have really funny <laughs> and memorable interactions, but I certainly remember her. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's, it is really humbling. I think it was about two years ago I was here for the Let Your Life Speak series. Yeah. And, <laughs> Excuse me, and seeing you know Miss Barry and uh, Miss Scattergood, it's just it was just like amazing. It just kind of brings back this positive feeling. Do you want you mentioned that you stay in touch with uh, uh, alumni? You want to call them out here? Any call out to your pals? <laughs> of course, <man. laughs> yeah. so many to, to to note, but you know some some of uh, some of my folks like Nicole Washington. Chris Simmons, and I just have to give the entire uh-huh. Simmons family a shout out. Dr. and Mrs. Simmons, Leslie, Mike, Robbie, <laughs> love the Simmons. Being a leader is not always an easy thing to do. No, right? it's not. And, and you are out there every day letting your life speak uh, to the values that you hold very dear. All leaders face challenges uh, around um, particularly ethics, right? And, and we see our leaders challenged in this way. Can you share with us a, an especially difficult decision that you had to make around ethics or a, an especially uh, difficult situation you had to manage um, about ethics? And, and maybe you could tell us also um, where you take your inspiration from. Sure, I tell everybody I only have two rules. One, we will always be legal and ethical first. And two, don't harm anyone I'm responsible for. And it amazes me how people manage to break those rules. It's only two, Yeah. (laughs) only two. When I was at an organization, going through the books, it became very clear that there were monies that were going to people who were friends of people who were affiliated with this organization. I'm not going to use where where I was. But a conflict of interest kind of. I mean, and I I found people literally on the back end of monies that are going out, and and this is taxpayer dollars. And, you know, once I found that out or discovered that, I cut all of those contracts out. I just cut them off. Just just done, not paying a dime. We're not doing this. Now, these people were also, were and are, powerful and have a lot of political juice and were not impressed by that and said to me, you know, we're going to make some calls, you're going to lose your job, you know, so on and so forth. Fine. You know, I didn't care. I have to sleep at night. And if and I always knew that, you know, if I lost my job, I believed that I'd be able to find another one, but I was not going to participate in this foolishness. I mean, once you know, then the burden is on you to actually do something, mm-hmm. right? Long story short, they did try to get me fired, um, but it didn't take. Years later, you mentioned earlier that I ran for Congress. Years later at a debate, 
I was cornered by one of these people who said, I will never support you because you cut off our money. And I said, I did it then and I'll do it again. You know, that it just is what it is. And sometimes you will lose friends, you know, um, you will get enemies. But it's more important for me, for my reputation, um, and again, for me as a person, for folks to know, Kim doesn't play with that. We don't do that. In ethical decisions and, and, and when you have to make these tough calls, not only do you lose friends, but you can gain enemies. And sometimes that's just okay. And then move on. You're an inspiring person. <laughs> Thank you. From, from where do you take your inspiration? You know, I honestly believe I get it from a couple of different sources. First and foremost, my mother. Um, my mother was the most amazing person I've ever met in life. She passed away 20 years ago now, and people who knew her to this day still speak of her in just beyond glowing terms. I always say that if I could become half the person she was, I would be doing a good job. Like, people just talk about how, like, she touched their lives in just these amazing ways, and she was very powerful and had all these big, great positions, but just, you know, had no ego. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember that. And I, I mentioned earlier about this me learning names, and I think I got it from her. I mean, we would walk through the halls of Congress, and she would know everyone from the security guard to the maintenance official to Senator so-and-so, you know, and she treated them all the same. And my other inspirations really come from people. I mean, I draw my energy from people. And I've just met the most amazing people in the world. Like the students that I had when I was at the community college, some most resilient folks you've ever seen in life. People would say, oh, those students have so many barriers and, you know, they didn't finish high school or, you know, they need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and da da da. How is they like, and oh, they always talk, talked about it as a second chance system. I'm like, when did these folks get a first chance? Mm. You know, you're talking about them as if they've done something wrong. You gotta put some skin in the game. They gotta do, and I'm like, here's the thing. They are awesome. I got a quality education. I was exposed to diversity of ideas and people. You know, I mean, it just, I, I, I was given all of the tools and support to be successful. And then you have these, these amazing people who, again, have never been given a first chance. They didn't have a quality education. They didn't have a support system. And yet they are still fighting. You know, they, they get knocked down and they get back up. I just source from that. You hear people's stories about housing instability, domestic violence, substance abuse, and they get back up. And they're still trying to pursue their dream. Like, mm -hmm. that is amazing. How do we not invest in that? Yeah, yeah. We find ourselves in a moment where people are less willing to invest in those opportunities, which I think is one of the uh, trends that makes Martha's Table even more important uh, today than, than maybe it's ever been in the district, right, in terms of how the district has changed over the mm -hmm. last 10 or 15 years. Um, what, what sort of inspiration, if any, did you take from Sidwell Friends? Well, yes, I mean, I think a lot of what, I think all these things are kind of conflated, right? And yeah. Sidwell, what I always talk about was this, the same concept that everyone was the same. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that we didn't have valedictorian, salutatorian, yeah. like this this equality across the board. Anyone can get up and speak in meaningful worship. Even with our, our uh, student body government, it was still very flat in the sense that everyone's voice mattered and, they, yeah. and everyone's voice carried the same weight. You know, Sidwell, at least when I was there, was a school that was very tolerant for the time. I remember there were other schools where people might, where people did have 
issues at the schools with bullying and so on because, you know, maybe they didn't fit a certain mold. But it said, well, we were accepting, you know, come one, come all. Uh, and I think that that was, at least in my perspective with some of the other schools, kind of we were at the forefront of that um, and seeing that you can have this melting pot of people from all these different backgrounds and races and ethnicities and religious and sexual orientations and socioeconomic status. I mean, like, and we all came together and we all were fine. I mean, I don't remember like it being a negative bullying place where if you were of this, then people would kind of attack you. Yeah. Uh, and I think that those those principles have really stuck with me. And, the, you know, again, the, the equality and the importance of the diversity. Uh, I just think that those things have always stuck with me. Um, we have had this uh, long connection, Sidwell Friends yes. and Martha's Table. Um, what would it look like to deepen that connection? Well, we love everything that, that Sidwell has done. You know, the third graders saved our Lyft partnership. Thank right. you very, very much for that. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about that since yes, we're here. So, so uh, it's a great story. Yeah, no, it's great because, uh, you know, one of the things that we do is uh, we understand uh, the, the our community and well, transportation is a big issue in the area where we are. Uh, it's, it's limited, it's expensive. So we were looking for partners to help make sure that people could, t could participate in the lobby market. It's great to have something, we're trying to have access, but if you can't get to us, you know, that's obviously an issue. So we embarked on a partnership with Lyft where you could get a, a ride for $2.50 to uh, our market or to a Giant or Safeway, uh, Ward 7 and 8. And it was a six-month pilot, and it was scheduled to end. And the wonderful third graders from Sidwell <laughs> wrote Lyft, like, all these letters that said, this is a great partnership. Don't end the partnership. How could you do this? <laughs> <I know>. and, <laughs> and it, Why it, would you end this? It was great. And it, <laughs> it went viral, and it basically publicly embarrassed them. And so they extended the partnership. Yeah. <laughs> so that was great. Well, it's a great example of how you can make a difference. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> Each day any one of us has the opportunity to have an impact on someone else. Absolutely. Right. And sometimes in the smallest of ways, I mean, opening a door and smiling at someone can mean the world to them. And it's really, really important to understand that. So I think in terms of deepening our partnership, please keep the sandwiches coming. Uh, <laughs> and the soup, right? <laughs> yes. The vegetables. Yes. The longstanding uh, yes. activity for exactly. us. Exactly. Because, uh, you know, McKenna's always has a hot meal. Yeah. Uh, and so the prep on uh, vegetables yeah. goes into whatever the hot meal of the day is. Sidwell, uh, you know, supports giving back. So we would love to see yeah. uh, more Sidwell volunteers, which would be great. You, you mentioned all these volunteer opportunities. Can you maybe explain for um, local alumni what ways that they might be able to get involved? Like, you know, maybe a few options that uh, uh, would be possible for them. Absolutely. So we talked about McKenna's Wagon, the prep sessions, yeah. and also going out on the wagon. The wagon, which is an amazing experience. It is. The, it's the greatest experience. Uh, we are looking for drivers in particular, so I'll put that plug okay. in. Our lobby markets are open from... One is open from 11 to 4, one is open from 11 to 3, and that's something where you uh, assist, uh, you know, neighbors who come in and they shop. And everything, again, we do is, is with dignity and respect, so everything is a very highly simulated experience. So you get a basket and you shop, and the person uh, bags you up, uh, mm -hmm. and so we have lobby markets. I mentioned the joyful markets. Those are about three hours. Uh, you know, obviously after school, it's right when the kids get out. Okay. Um, and does the 
Like these I, are at the elementary schools. These are at the, yeah. all elementary schools in Ward 7 and 8. And again, every, Tuesday through Friday, there's four going on a day. So there's always an opportunity there. We have events all the time. And so if someone's like looking for, you know, an evening event, like our community dinner or our community market, uh, those are once a month. So that's an opportunity. And the other thing is, you know, I mentioned our Outfitters Boutique. A, you can volunteer at it. It's our boutique where you shop, again, at no cost for children's clothes and adult workforce attire. And again, back to the highly simulated experience, you actually get a credit card uh, and we load credit on the credit card. Yeah. And so you go up and you swipe out and you know, a retail associate checks you out. But there's also an opportunity to donate clothes. I mean, we're right. always looking for clothes, really all ages. Yeah, yeah, because the adult workforce attire goes really quickly. Okay. Um, yeah. And again, you know, obviously folks needing clothes for employment, it's very important. Um, but again, also to clothe right. the children. Uh, and so that's something that we, we're seeing an incredible uptick in people coming into Outfitters. Okay, And good. we rely on donations. Yeah. So if we yeah. don't have your size, we don't have anything So there's for a you. real need there. Yeah. Yeah. What are the biggest needs you see, um, especially where Martha's Table is located um, in Ward 7 and 8? I would say the biggest need is people to be in a career with a family-sustaining wage. And when we go back to what the goal is, is that the folks who are there now can stay and thrive, they're going to have to keep pace with the economics that are moving. Ideally, you want them to move faster than the economics moving, because it's great that we're making millions of dollars of investments in six weeks to age four, but those young people are not making financial decisions for their households for like 18 years and probably longer. So if we invest all of this in these young people, only to have them thrive in PG County, that's not really what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So this has to come, when we talk about like the two-gen model, and not just families who are connected to Martha's Table, but that whole community that we talk about, the, the income, it's not at a place where people will be able to stay. And so you have to be able to find ways to move that income. And so that is actually the biggest need. To me, economics sits at the middle of everything, and then everything else kind of sprouts out from that, right? Because your economics dictate health, dictates mm -hmm. environment, dictates uh, affiliations with the justice system. It dictates all of these other things, mm -hmm. right? So that is the biggest need. You have to get people at the family-sustaining wage where they can take care of themselves and their families. And again, we could go down all the social determinants of health, which we are trying to pull on, again, to ensure that people can stay and thrive. But I would really say the economics is sitting in the middle, so we've got to work on getting folks, you know, again, to that family-sustaining wage, uh, and then housing. I would say housing is the number two issue. Mm -hmm. This is so much fun. <laughs> I want to ask you one last question. Yep. What advice would you give your 18-year-old self at Sidwell Friends? When you, if you look back to yourself as, as a senior, Right, many of our seniors are getting ready to move on now. Um, they're looking. They're looking to graduation. It's only January, but trust me, they're looking to graduation. <laughs> I know, I know. Right, right. What advice would you give yourself? Yeah, the advice I'd give myself, and really, is to really follow your heart and your passion. I think that somehow that gets derailed. I see so many young people who are like, their heart and their passion is writing, but. Their plan is to go to law school and then, you know, do the thing that they love. 
and that just breaks my heart, you know? Like, why? Why do you do that? Well, because I have to make money. Well, why? You, you can make money in writing. You know, I hear this all the time. I want to be in social justice work. I want to be in reform. I want to do, but first, I got to go get an MBA and work on Wall Street for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And it's just really dangerous because I've seen those people over the years very unhappy. Uh, you go to law school or MBA or whatever, you rack up a ton of debt, then you really do have to go work somewhere and make a ton of money because mm-hmm. you have to pay off the debt. And at the end of the day, the opportunity cost of happiness still isn't there. And I've met so many people, you know, 50s, 60s, they retire, they're like, now I can do the thing I love. And wouldn't it just be better if you spent your life doing the thing that you love? You know, life is just too short. Things just start to add up. Life happens. You you get in a union. Kids come. I mean, it just... And then, like I said, you just look up and you're like, man, my whole life went past me and I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. And so my advice, again, is just be fearless in, in following your heart and your passion and everything else will come. I never wanted to be a dean or be at the White House or... Uh, be an SES in the government, be a president and CEO. Like, all that stuff happens to come when you're just following your heart and your passion. Everything has a way of working itself out. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I, one of my favorite books is called The Happiness Advantage. It's by Sean Aker. And it says that we have everything backwards. People think that you're supposed to work hard, and if you work hard, you get success. And if you get success, then you're happy. And his argument is actually you have to be happy first and success revolves around happiness Mm -hmm. and so that's my advice thank you for letting your life speak kim thank you brian i really appreciate it and thank you for your wisdom this was great fun awesome thank you (laughs) (laughs) 